Hey everybody, it's Pastor Will. Welcome or welcome back to the Brazos Fellowship Podcast. Thank you for listening today. And at the end of this episode, please take a moment to subscribe to this podcast if you aren't already. But more importantly, I hope the following presentation inspires you to take the next step in your faith journey. Enjoy. But tonight, we are going to continue a series we've been in. We're actually concluding it tonight here on Christmas Eve, uh, the origin story of Christmas. And tonight, what I'd like to do, as we take a look at this kind of second half of Jesus' birth, it's like Jesus has just been born, and there is all this stuff that begins to transpire. And here's what I want to just say before we dive into that. Jesus is like the most polarizing person to have ever lived. And here's what I mean by that. Even in his birth. There were people who either wanted to worship him or they wanted to kill him, okay? Why is that? What was it that caused such a polarization? We're going to talk about that a little bit tonight because there's a sense in which some of that is still happening inside of each one of us and we need to identify that and how do we navigate that? So let's take a look tonight in uh, the Gospel of Matthew chapter 2. We'll start with verse 1 and we're going to work our way through that chapter. We're going to be kind of looking at select passages, but let's look together at how it begins. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east, this is the wise men, by the way. I just always like to say that because I know sometimes people go, who are those people? That's the wise men. Okay, so that's who that is. Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When the king Herod heard this, he was disturbed. Now, let's pause for a minute before we go any further. If you come into a palace and there is someone sitting on the throne and you say, where's the king? Like, to say that he was disturbed may be the biggest understatement in the New Testament, all right? He was really rubbed the wrong way, like, wait, wait, what? What did you just say? And he was very curious, and he wanted to know, and we're going to look at the rest of the story and see what happens. It says, and then Herod sent them to Bethlehem. He had talked to his scholars who told him all the prophecies about this coming Christ child, this Messiah, says that he's going to be born in the vicinity of Bethlehem. This is why he sent them there. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, go search for him carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshiped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And the verse goes on to say, And when they had gone, the angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother, escape to Egypt, and stay there until I tell you. For Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother and during the night, and left for Egypt where they stayed until the death of Herod. When Herod realized what had happened, that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious and gave orders to kill the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. This kind of gives us the idea that maybe they had been following that star for about two years, that Jesus now was about two years old. This is why they visit him at home with his mother and not in the stable in the manger. So it kind of puts everything in perspective. But 
But when he, he being Joseph, heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Well, I'll say, maybe he wants to finish his dad's business. We don't want to get anywhere close to him. Having been warned in a dream, he, again, this is Joseph, withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets that he would be called a Nazarene. So this is such a critical and important part of the birth of Jesus, the account, historical account of the birth of Jesus. And the question I want to ask tonight, get you to think about with me, is why is King Herod killing these children? Why does he want everybody dead, right? Now, that's not usually the question people ask on Christmas Eve, but it's an important one. And I think as we dig down a little bit, we're going to find some kind of really important and helpful answers. And of course, the answer is, some of you might know the history behind this, because he felt threatened. He felt threatened by this, this, would be, this coming Messiah that would be taking over, he felt like, his throne, take away his power and take away all of his ability to call the shots and be in charge. You see, history tells us that King Herod was a brutal and cruel despot of a ruler. He often would kill members of his own court and even his family if he felt like they challenged his absolute power as a ruler. He did this often. So for him to take the step of killing children really wasn't all that crazy. Nobody really freaked out. No one liked it. It was a horrible, dark day in Israel's history. But it was something that you could see him doing because he was fearful. It was his fear that drove him to do this. His fear of losing control caused him to, to want to fight against anything or anyone that challenged him in any way. And now before we judge Herod too harshly, let me just say to you that what happened to Herod can happen to every one of us, any one of us. That that same deep down fear and desire to want to be in charge, to want to be in control. Now, we may not carry it out to the heinous and horrible extent that he did, but there is the same place in which we have to struggle in our own heart. As a matter of fact, all through the Bible, we're told that the evil of this world doesn't just come from the power-hungry, egomaniac rulers that are oppressing the poor. The evil of this world ultimately stems from self-centeredness, of the human heart and every human heart. That's what the Bible teaches. Now, I want you to think about this for just a minute. Because deep down, what we're told, and, and really if we're gut-level honest, we have to say, you know what, that's actually true. That If we really had it our way, we would love for the world to revolve around and orbit around us and what we desire and what we want what we like. We wish we could have our way all the time. But deep down, like we, you're not supposed to admit these kind of things at church and certainly not on Christmas Eve, but deep down, if we really had it our way, we wouldn't serve God and our neighbor. We'd have them serving us, making things better on us. We want to be the master of our own soul. We want to call the shots on our own fate and destiny. Deep down, the yearnings, the impulses of our soul say, nobody's going to tell me what to do. I'm going to call the shots around here. And 
there is this war, there's this battle, there's this conflict that we feel inside of us at times. And here's the question I want you to ask yourself before we go any further. Who is the true king of your heart tonight? Not what you think you're supposed to say, not what you're, the, the, the church answer to this, but what are the actual priorities upon which you make major life decisions that, that you guide your life with? What, what are those things that help navigate difficult moments for you? Now, you might be here tonight saying, and I'm so glad you're here, saying, I don't really know how I feel about or believe about Christianity or even the existence of God. I'm not even sure I really believe all of that, or maybe I don't think I believe that at all. <clears throat> Let me just say something to you that just really kind of reminding you, you probably already know this, that the claims that Jesus made and the existence of God is not something that people can just remain neutral on. As a matter of fact, I love the brutal honesty of American philosopher and atheist Thomas Nagel and some of his writing that I came across not long ago that I want to share with you that I think is really beautifully honest. You don't always get this kind of level of honesty, but here's what he said. This atheist philosopher, he says, I want atheism to be true, and I am made uneasy by the fact that some of the most intelligent and well-informed people I know are religious believers. It isn't just that I don't believe in God and naturally hope that my belief is right. I hope there is no God. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want there to be a universe like that. My guess is that this cosmic authority problem, I love how he puts that, this cosmic authority problem is not rare. And he's right. It ain't rare. It's all over the place. As a matter of fact, the Apostle Paul, who wrote the vast majority of the New Testament, would say, Thomas Nagel, you're right on the money. As a matter of fact, it doesn't matter if you're a Christian or not a Christian, there is this cosmic authority problem that all of us face. There is a conflict going on inside of every one of us. There is a sin nature inside of us, even if you're a born-again Christian, that yes, Jesus has forgiven you of sin and he has come into your life, but there is a still a sense that you have to continue to choose righteousness, choose obedience. You have to put him first. And Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 7. I want to read you a passage that I think really illuminates this well. He says, I do not understand what I do. Now, let me just remind you, this is the Apostle Paul, and he's writing to Christian people in Rome, okay? He's not writing to a bunch of people that have no faith in God. He says, I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate to do. It is sin living in me, for in my inner being I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. And he ends by saying this, what a wretched man am I, or I am, who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ, our Lord. He says, listen, can you relate? Is this relatable to you at all? Do you ever find it hard to pray? Like, I'm a pastor and I find it hard to pray sometimes, okay? Like, we always, like, I'm just too busy. I don't have enough time for devotion time with God today. I got too much going on. It's, I'm, I'm just too busy. I can't do it. Like even stopping to concentrate on who God is, who Jesus is, it takes concerted effort. You have to be intentional about it, don't you? 
It, just, it doesn't just happen. And if God does answer a prayer, have you ever had this happen? You tell God, I'll never forget that you did this for me, God. And we forget, don't we? Yeah. And our, we, we blow it. And we ask God, God, please forgive me. And he does. And we say, God, we'll never do it again. A couple of weeks go by and we find ourselves doing it again. What is that thing? Why do we do that? We all do it. Trust me, I've been a pastor, you know, for nearly 30 years now. And I have seen all kinds of people. Everybody struggles with this. This tension is in every single person. What is this? I'll tell you what it is. There's a little King Herod in each of us that wants to rule. All right? Nobody wants to admit it, but it is so stinking true. He's there, absolutely. And he wants to dethrone Jesus, okay? He doesn't want anybody or anything, God alone, or Jesus, nobody calling the shots. And it's funny because there's every conflict and, and frustration and struggle that we have in our life stems from letting this guy call the shots in our heart. And it's interesting, this is why we have to be so like intentional about prayer and we have to be intentional about spiritual growth. We have to be intentional about accountability with other Christians and to be plugged in to the body of Christ. Paul goes on to talk about that the body of Christ, the church, is that every member of the body belongs to all the others. I love that analogy. It's kind of like looking at the anatomy of a human body. If you start severing off parts, it doesn't look good, does it? And it's not healthy for the finger or the hand, right, where it got cut off. When it gets cut off, it has a hard time surviving. And this is where a lot of people go awry. They say, no, no, I don't need anybody. I don't need the church. I don't need people. I don't need God. I'm good. You know what that is? That's little King Herod taking control right there. Saying, I got this. I'm good. I'll call the shots. I don't want anybody telling me. But we're not built that. We're not designed that way by God. And I love that this is the thing for which Jesus says, I have come as the king to help heal and to make right in your life. But you have to trust me. You have to lean on me. And when Jesus came as a king, he came in the most unexpected, inexplicably opposite way in which anybody would have thought. And right down to where he was brought to grow up. You see, when Joseph comes back, as we read just a minute ago, he didn't go to the power centers, the influence centers of the world, places like Jerusalem. No, he went to Nazareth, okay? Nazareth was a nowhere kind of place. As a matter of fact, you see it reflected in this beautiful little conversation at the end of chapter 1 of the Gospel of John when Philip comes to his buddy Nathaniel, okay, and he tells Nathaniel, we found the Messiah. He's like, oh my gosh, who is he? You know, like we've been waiting for hundreds and hundreds of years for the Messiah to show. He goes, he's Jesus of Nazareth. He's like, wait, wait what? Nazareth? He literally says, can anything good come from Nazareth? That little backwater, no good town? Are you kidding me? The Messiah comes from Nazareth? Really? Why did God do that? God constantly did this. He picked Nazareth, places and people like Nazareth, over Jerusalem. You see, when God wants to take on a Goliath, he doesn't go get a bigger giant. 
he brings out a little shepherd boy. A little shepherd boy that's so scrawny and so little and so inept that the giant looks at him and laughs. <laughs> kind of like Santa, right? He, ho, ho, ho. Okay, he laughs and says, are you kidding me with this? You're bringing a, a little shepherd boy out? And God says, I'm not dependent upon his strength. He's dependent upon mine. You, you, don't, you need to understand, like you have to reverse the paradigm for how all this works, right? I don't work like a Herod. I work the opposite of a Herod. You see, back in a patriarchal, male-driven, firstborn gets all the wealth, firstborn male gets all of the prestige and the power, God constantly picked the Abel over the Cain, the Isaac over the Ishmael, the Jacob over over the uh, uh, Esau. He, he constantly picked David over all of his older brothers that were much better fighters at the time. You see, God constantly picked the Nazareth over the Jerusalem. And at a time, ladies, when women were really valued only for their beauty and fertility, he goes down and he says to Sarah, I choose you over that young Hagar. I choose you, Leah, over your beautiful sister, Rachel. I choose, and he goes to these women who were told they were barren. They could never have children. And he goes to them and he says, hey, Rebecca, Hannah, Elizabeth, you will have children. And they did. He continued to restore and show, I'm going to use the girl everybody cast aside. I'm going to use the boy that nobody wanted and they all forgot about. And that's the one I'm going to pick. And that's who I'm going to use. I'm always going to pick the Nazareth over the Jerusalem. I'm going to work like that. And this is God showing this. This is the kind of king that he is. When we ask the question, what kind of king are we really surrendering to? We're surrendering to the kind of king that at the, the apex of his existence, of his, uh, of his reign and, and his, his ministry, he ascends not to a throne, he ascends to a cross. And he bears the suffering and the evil and the darkness and the sin of this world that is only here because of human hearts dethroning Jesus and trying to reign their own little King Herod. And Jesus says, and I've come to heal that, to wipe it out. I'm doing a rescue mission to pull you out of this darkness because now you don't have to pay for the sins that you committed, that you deserve to suffer for. I'm going to do that for you, and I'm going to help set you free. And I love this. This is his way of showing us that this is the reason for which I came, and this is the kind of king that I am. So what does this mean for us today? This means that it doesn't matter who you are, what you've done, what your background is, what secrets you have brought here with you tonight from your past, it doesn't matter. If you're willing to come before Jesus the King and say, Jesus, I need forgiveness, and I'm willing to repent and turn from sin and turn to you and trust you as the Lord of my life, I'm willing to put you on the throne of my life in every aspect and area of my life. I'm turning from, I'm asking you to forgive my sin, but also be the Lord of all parts of my life. Jesus is making it clear that I love to work through people like you. The answer is yes, I will forgive you, and I will work in your life. 
As a matter of fact, I've been working in people's lives just like you all through human history. And I am just getting started. I want to work in your life. But the, the question is, tonight on this Christmas Eve, what areas of your life are you still on the throne? You're still letting the little Herod of your heart call the shots. And it's time tonight to say, no more. I, I just... It doesn't work out well. It's horrible. Like, I need to let God be in charge of my relationships, to be in charge of my future, my kids, my marriage, my finances, my, my, whatever that is, to say, God, I, I really, I'm just sick of holding, withholding one little part or maybe a bunch of parts, and I need to just give it all over to you, let you reign as king over all of it. This is why he came, to seek and to save that which is lost that he was called Jesus because he would save his people from their sins. Jesus means the Lord saves. This is the reason for which he came, and this is the kind of king that he is. And you can trust him. He loves you. He's absolutely diametrically opposite the way most earthly kings function. And he says, and because of that, you can trust me. I love you, and I want to work through your life. And tonight, the question is, are you willing to trust him? Here's the application prayer. I'm asking you to pray with me. It's simply saying, Jesus, thank you for coming to be my king. I surrender the throne in all areas of my life. From now on, you rule. You are my king. Once again, thanks for listening. If you live in the Brazos Valley, we would love for you to engage with us at one of our weekend services. For directions, service times, and information about our fabulous children's and student environments, visit us at brazosfellowship.com. That's brazosfellowship.com.